0: Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Inning Craft Library. And welcome to a very, very special edition of our Writer's Live series. We are so thrilled to see all of you here tonight. And the Justice will be here in just a minute, because the first thing she wanted to do was give her gratitude to the people in the overflow room in the auditorium. And she is now, she thanked them. She told them that those were the people who had the most patience, and that now she doesn't have to be in the overflow room so she knows what it's like. And then she's doing something that caused those nice gentlemen in the suits to kind of pale a little bit more. She got off the stage, and she's shaking hands. So she should be here. But we, as you know, we have welcomed Pulitzer Prize and award-winning authors, members of Congress, Oscar, Emmy, Grammy winners, the Vice President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, and newsmakers from across the world. But we have checked our archives, and you know we librarians, we like to do that. And this is the first time in the library's history that we have welcomed a sitting Justice of the Supreme Court. Now, tonight's event is a great example, and this is a plug for public libraries. Continue to be a public forum for civic engagement that brings together people with various ideas and from different backgrounds, and we're proud of that tradition. I want to thank all of the city, state, county, federal officials that are here today. The judicial and legal community is really in the house tonight. Uh, The business and community leaders, the members of the Hispanic community who traveled from all over, all over the state. We have students. The University of Maryland Law School is here. Princeton grads are here. Everybody's here. So thank you. And programs like this, and this is another one thing I really have to say because so many of our generous donors to the Pratt Library here, and we are so Grateful for their support because these nights would not be possible without them and tonight we're pleased to announce a new sponsor one main financial some of you may remember that was commercial credit is a new sponsor of our author series for 2013 and thank you one main because we'll have more programs like this <clears throat> now just a little housekeeping before the justice um, comes down. Um, as you know, her book, My Beloved World, is for sale at our circulation desk with our partners from the Ivy Bookstore. We're so pleased that they are still going, Ivy Bookstore. It's available in Spanish and audiobooks as well. And all of the books, the justice came in early. Her schedule's a little tight. I think she has a few things to do. Um, but she came in this afternoon to make sure that all of the books were signed. So all of the books will be available. Now, we will have also, because of the tight schedule, staff members, could you raise your hands? Staff members who have index cards, raise them higher. Okay, (laughs) staff members who have index cards uh, for questions that you might have. And if you could write your questions down, and I'm gonna um, actually ask the questions. So we will try to get in as many questions as possible uh, to be signed. Now, our special guest tonight... You know, there are so many things we could say. But some of you saw uh, the 60-minute special about her. And librarians all over the country swooned when she said that her two influences were Nancy Drew Books and Perry Mason shows that were based on books. But best of all, and this is what librarians consider music to their ears, she told the Today Show that she frequented her neighborhood library in the Bronx and in her words, I read anything and anything I could get my hands on. So from there, Princeton, Yale, and now to the Halls of Justice. Well, we have the honor and she's gonna come from right here. (laughs) And the men in suits are looking. Because, and he's shaking his head. <laughs> and here she is, Justice Sonia Soto Thank you. Thank you. All
1: you know, the very first time I'm ashamed to say that I visited Baltimore was a little, about 20 years ago. Does that surprise you? I had come to Washington often, and I have gone through the Baltimore Tunnel on 95, and for years, I never thought of stopping here. And as you'll find out if you read my book, you'll learn that I'm a little—I have a little streak of spontaneity in me. As deliberate and planning as I am about my career, in my personal life, I just sometimes veer off. <laughs> And so I got off, and I walked to your harbor and loved it. And then, because you know that I'm a fan of that other team to the north, I walked over and plucked myself at Camden Yards in the bleachers. Now, today I don't go back to the bleachers. But I thought then, and I still think today, what a lovely city. What a pleasant, beautiful place. What I didn't have a chance to learn on that first visit, but which I've gotten to experience in my last three years as a justice, is how wonderful the people here are. Every single time that I've come to Baltimore for any event, I've been warmly received. And tonight is no exception. Thank you all for coming and for spending a part of the evening with me. There is no more perfect place for me to be at a book event than a library. If you haven't read my book yet, because I know everyone who has knows this. Libraries are incredibly important to me. And the reason for it I describe in greater detail in my book. But it's very simple. When my dad died, my home was filled with a lot of sadness. And I found books to escape the grief. They became my rocket ship, my plane to the rest of the world and a rocket ship to different universes. In books, I found escape. And believe it or not, today, this many years later, almost 50 now, God, I'm aging myself. My dad died when I was nine. So you can, for those kids in the audience, can you figure out my age? Um, For me, it became a way to open my imagination. See, I can't sing or dance. I can't draw to save my life. I can't act for anything. But books let me open the creativity of my mind to imagine people in places that I thought I'd never get to visit. And you know what's delightful today? When I visit a place that I only read about, it's so wonderful to see how it differed from what I imagined. Sometimes it's good difference and sometimes it's not such a good difference. But in every experience I realize that I know something about what I'm going to because I've read it. I want to read you a passage about that time in my life, and I'm going to ask Carla to hold the microphone while I do that. Okay. Um, I have a mic on. Is it going to work as loud as this one? I think so. Well, then let me try reading okay. without it, okay? As spring turned to summer, Mommy stayed shut in her darkened room, and I found myself on summer vacation longing for school to start. There's no kid in this room who's ever longed for school to start. (laughs) Didn't feel like playing outside. I couldn't articulate exactly what I feared, but I knew I should stay close by and keep an eye on things. My solace and my only distraction that summer was reading. I discovered the pleasure of chapter books, and devoured a big stack of them. The Parchester Public Library was my haven. To thumb through the card catalog was to touch an infinite bounty, more books than I could ever possibly exhaust. My choices were more or less random. There was no one in my family who could point me towards children's classics, no teacher who took an interest, And it never occurred to me to ask the librarian for guidance. My mother had subscribed to Highlights for Junior and Me and Reader's Digest for herself. But by now I was reading whole issues of the Digest myself, cover to cover. Laughter, the best medicine, was what I surely needed then. Sometimes when a story caught my imagination, I could search the library for the original book. I understood that these were excerpts or abridgments, but I never had any luck. And that mystified me. Now I realize that a tiny public library in a poor neighborhood would be unlikely to to receive new releases. So what a pleasure for me to have my newly issued book at a public library in the heart of an inner city and what an even greater joy for me to meet carla and every one of our staff members who have a different view of being librarians than when I grew up, or any of us my age here grew up. The outreach that librarians are making today is extraordinary. And in this difficult economy, libraries are that much more important to reaching out to kids and to communities and helping them continue to keep pace with the world we're in. Carla, thank you and to every member of your staff for hosting this event today. All right. I'm coming down, and you've seen me do this, some of you on television, to come walk around and talk to you. It's because I think the people way back there only see a little speck over here, And that's not fair to them, okay? And so I'm going to do some of that. But you see the big guys around me? (laughs) They get scared when too many people stand up. So please stay seated as I'm doing this. Because if they get scared, they pull me back, okay? Um, And if they get really scared, they take me off the stage. So let's not have that happen, all right? So... I think the first question that I get from any audience is, why did I write this very personal book? Because, you know, as my preface tells everyone, I understood that I was doing something very different than what most justices have done. And all of the lawyers in this room And a lot of the judges, many of whom have taken the time to be here today and for which I'm eternally grateful, are probably thinking to themselves, Sonia, what have you done to people's expectations? (laughs) Who wants to be this open? And I realized as I was writing the book that I was making myself very, very vulnerable because people were going to judge me by what's in this book. And the bottom line is, there were many reasons for buying the book, but there was really one central reason. I understood that there were many people in this world who had faced, if not the identical challenges I had, very similar ones, there are countless people with parents who have struggled with addictions. And if not addictions, with their own health problems. And there are countless kids and countless families who have struggled with health issues. Maybe not only diabetes, but with many other kinds. And there are many, many people who have struggled with poverty and a huge number with not speaking English and coming to a life in a community and trying to make it their home and struggling to do that. And I also know that there are many, many people who have lived the way I have with insecurities. Because if you don't have any, I think you better worry a little bit. (laughs) Because life's challenges are big. And we're often thrust into situations that are new, that are a little scary. I was told by one of my bosses, and I don't quite repeat the story in such salty language, but he once said group of us DAs, the day that you stop being afraid when you walk into the courtroom, hang it up because you've gotten too cocky. And when another colleague of mine expressed her fear by crying, his response was looking at her and saying, please go and throw up like a man. I don't think he'd say that today, okay? But the reality is that challenges are things that many people face. And insecurities are a constant part of our lives. And I thought to myself that if I could make a difference in this world, in writing something, it would be to share that with people so that people with those challenges, would still feel hope. And there is one passage, probably my absolute favorite passage in the whole book, because it's at page 178, where I summarize, if you're seeing me search, it's because... I don't know how the yellow, oh, the yellow stickum is still here. (laughs) You'll find out from the book that my mother thought books were sacred. She never let us mark a book. She never let us dog ear a book. And if she knew that I had spilled coffee on this book, she would be so upset at me. (laughs) The greatest invention for my mother was the yellow stickums that I could write on so that I would stop committing sins and stop writing in books. But this is my favorite passage. When a young person, even a gifted one, grows up without proximate living examples of what she may aspire to become,
0: whether lawyer,
1: scientist, artist, or leader in any realm, her goal remains abstract. Such models as appear in books or on the news, however inspiring or revered, are ultimately too remote to be real, let alone influential. But a role model in the flesh provides more than just an inspiration. His or her very existence is confirmation of possibilities one may have every reason to doubt saying, yes, someone like this can, someone like me can do this. My greatest role model in life is my mother. And if she were here today, she would stand before you and say, I didn't know how to be a mother. Believe it or not, my kids raised themselves What an absurd statement for her to be making. And I needed to make sure that anyone who read this book would understand how really, uh, these kids shouldn't hear me say that, but how really something stupid like that is. No child raises themselves. But I think what my mother, when she's being honest, will say, is that none of us, just like Justice Stevens told me, no one's born a justice. You grow into the role. You learn how to be a judge. You learn how to be a parent, too. When you take the steps together with your kids and you grow together, parent and child, and that's the second reason I wrote this book. To make sure that every parent who read it would understand what a joy a journey like that together can be. And to encourage every child who had a parent who they occasionally got upset at. And if it's like me with my mother, it's a lot that you would take the opportunity to stop in those moments of anger and look at each other and say, we're learning together, forgive each other. And that was the second purpose of the book. Because you all know when I was being confirmed, I was asked a lot, a lot of questions about my family particularly about my father, who I hardly knew. And I knew even less about his family. In fact, it would surprise many of you that until I began to write this book, I didn't even know where my father was born. I thought he was born in the town that I knew he had come from, Puerto Rico to the United States from. But I had never bothered to ask, is that where you were born? I just assumed it. There's a reason for that. My grandmother remarried. She left Puerto Rico with all her children. And she lost contact with my father's family. So it was a family that I knew nothing about. And this book gave me a chance to learn about that family. And what I found out is what I found was a father I never knew and a love affair with my mother that I had never known about. See, by the time I had conscious memory, my father had already fallen into the despair of his chronic disease, alcoholism. And I never got to see my mother and father really happy If I did, I don't remember those moments. I only remembered the fights. Because you see, addictions become the scourge of everybody. They become everybody's burden. And that's one of the things about diseases and especially addictions that haunt every family in which it's present. But sometimes you forget that people with those afflictions can have and have had moments of joy in their own lives and that they can be, despite their diseases, good people inside. And that's the dad I found a creative, loving, giving husband, and a father who I knew loved me, but I didn't really appreciate how much. And so that's a gift like no other, to be able to do something like write a book and find that out at my age, not that old, But um, now I think settling into middle class, (laughs) uh, to middle age. That means i got a long way to go, guys, you know? (laughs) And so a lesson that I share with every audience I speak to. If you're blessed with a living parent, a living grandparent, a living aunt and uncle, who know about your family history, spend the time actually listening to them. Instead of rolling your eyes at Sunday dinner, and I did it too, actually sit back and ask them two questions. Why did that happen in your life? And second, how did you feel when it happened? You will be amazed by how much people will tell you when you simply ask them, how did that happening to you feel like? It's amazing how much people will tell you that they sometimes haven't shared with anyone else. It's just something we're not used to doing. We're used to thinking about how we feel, but we rarely think of asking someone else how they feel. And it's been an incredible lesson to me. Take advantage. It's never too late, but it can be tomorrow if you wait too long to do that. My nine, almost 95 year old uncle died two months after I spent a day talking to him. Don't wait. We're never sure that we'll have time when we're ready. So make the time now, please. And what was the third gift of this book? Because there's been endless, endless gifts. I got to tell the world a little bit about what being a Latina kid in the United States is about. And I got to tell people a little bit about an island that I love, Puerto Rico. Ah, I know. And you know, there's a whole lot of people who have talked to me to say, I thought Puerto Ricans were foreigners. (laughs) I didn't know they were citizens. Well, we are. And we are proud, proud Americans. And the book describes the reasons for our pride and the many sacrifices we've made on behalf of our country. Do you know that a greater proportion of Puerto Ricans to the size of our population have died than the proportion of any members of any state of this union. And my mother served in the military, my grandfather served in the military, one of my grandfathers, and many of my aunts and uncles have as well. And so have many of my friends. And so it's a wonderful opportunity in writing a book To share with the world the slice of America and to let people see that this great country of ours is even greater when we can take notice of how similar all of us are. You know, we eat different food. Sometimes we play different music. And sometimes we even have unusual practices. In my family, seances. Okay? But despite those superficial differences, we share common values. We love family. We love country. And we believe in community. And we believe in service to others. And those key ingredients not only draw together people as family, but they draw us together as communities. And a real important purpose of this book was to remind people of those basic values. I don't believe that anyone present in this library no matter what your background, color, or birth language, have any difference in believing that the greatest gift of opportunity in our society is education. You're not in this library. If you don't believe that, you're here because someone in your family or among your friends or a teacher or someone you love taught you that. And so, in the end, if everyone comes away reading from this book understanding how important that commonality is, then that too has made the book worthwhile for me. So... For those of you who have read it and who have told me tonight you've enjoyed it, thank you. For those of you who haven't, I hope that by my talking to you today, you'll have a little insight as to what made the book tick and why it was important to me. And I hope that you'll find a moment in the book that will be similar enough to a piece of your life that it'll open a door of recognition in your mind and a moment of joy in laughing at something or crying with something. Because that, to me, is what makes a good book. Is there a moment when you can laugh and a moment when you can cry with it? And so I hope you find your moments. Carla, I understand I'm taking questions from the audience.
0: Yes, you are. And I just wanted to also let you know, uh, Justice, that um, one of the events that we had, we announced that we had wonderful new chairs so we could have events like this, and we thanked our generous donors. Tonight I'd like to thank our generous voters in the city who voted for a bond issue so we could get a brand-new sound system that we're trying out tonight. Now,
1: we
0: did an okay job. All right. Everything so we're has we're, to getting have a first we're getting there. We're real stage. fancy exactly. here. Real fancy. Uh, our first question is from Amanda O'Neill, who's 11 years old. Amanda, where are you? Where are, up, Amanda? Up, Amanda? are Amanda you, Amanda? Amanda. Amanda O'Neill. Where are you? Hello, Amanda. How are you? And Amanda wanted to know when you first became Supreme Court Justice, what went through your mind when you walked into your new office. Amanda, I had the best
1: gift that you can imagine. Um, The first time I went to my office, because I'm a little superstitious, I didn't want to walk into my office until after I was sworn in as a justice. Because you see, people who have been nominated (laughs) to positions like the court they tell you that you shouldn't go to the courthouse until the day that you're you're sworn in because it's bad luck. All right? So um, I didn't go into my office until after my first unofficial swearing in. And before I got there, everybody in the world was stopping me to shake my hand and hug me and kiss me. There was about 100 of my closest family members that day they and friends. When I got there, my mother and her husband, my stepfather, were there already. And all I could think of was, oh, my God, is this real? For the longest, longest time, I thought I was living in a dream. And I don't know... Even today, when I come to things like this and I see all these people coming to wait to be with me, I think to myself, this is like a dream. I don't want to wake up. Thank you for coming.
0: Another student wanted to know... What is the most valuable lesson you learned growing up in the Bronx that you can share with students, especially those in high school who believe dropping out is a quick solution to immediate problems? Well,
1: in answer to that last question, first, that's your
0: question. There's the high school student.
1: You're kidding me. Hello, how are you? Ah, oh, I will. Let him grab it and give me a pen in a minute, okay? I my pen, too. All right. I'll sign that. You know, you can talk hard statistics to kids, and I will. The statistics are that today if you don't graduate from high school you're never going to earn much of a living. It just doesn't happen anymore. Today you can't only graduate from high school you have to graduate from college too. And so if you want to live in poverty for the rest of your life drop out of school. Mm. If you want some hope for you and any kids you have Stay in school. It's as simple as that. You know what I think of kids who drop out of high school? They're chickens. It's hard work for me to say, right? They got no guts. Because to stay in school takes courage because you have to take the chance, you have to accept the fear that you may not be as smart as you think. And that's why I said you lack courage and you lack guts when you drop out of school because you're not willing to do the work to prove That in fact, you got what it takes. And I think that's the lesson I grew up with in the Bronx. Which is the greatest challenge that we have is not to let fear stop us from trying. You know? Because it's fear that makes us doubt that we can succeed. And a lot of people, instead of taking the risk they might not, just don't even try. But I tell kids all the time, you know something, what's the worst if you fail a class? You take it over. Exactly. You know, it ain't the end of the world. What's so bad about trying something and not being good at it? You try again. And you never give up from trying. Now, you may find out, like I do or did, I'm never going to dance on my own. I'm a horrible dancer. (laughs) So you know how I fixed that? I went around my problem. I figured out how to follow somebody who knows how to dance. And so if the guy who asked me can dance... I can dance too. And every floor I go on, I watch out to make sure the guy can can dance first before I say yes. (laughs) The bottom line moral, some things you're not going to be good at. No one's good at everything. But until you try, you can't find out if you can do it or not. And sometimes you have to go around the problem because you can't master everything. But you can figure out what you're good at, and you can figure out how to make yourself better at it. And that's what's going to give you success in life. Trying, learning, and figuring out how to do things better. And so have courage. Ah, thank you. All right.
0: Very nice gift.
1: Before, before you leave, I'll sign that, okay? George, I'll get it back to you.
0: All right. Now what this, was the next question? Now, this is a little more personal about right. doubt. Was there ever a time that you doubted being in law school?
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I talk about it in my book. You've got to read my book. I didn't, when I graduated, uh, Who asked that question all the way back there? Stand up. Law school students. Uh, hmm? Okay. Come on up a little bit. Um, my book will tell you that I graduated from law school knowing I didn't know how to think like a lawyer yet. All right? Went through three years of of law school, and I knew it hadn't completely clicked. I mean, I did fairly well at law school. I was on the law journal. You know, I knew how to write papers, so I could write a note. Research, I was really good at it. But I knew, because I had a big failure in law school, that I wasn't there yet about what it meant to think like a lawyer completely. And I had an intuitive sense that it wasn't right for me to go yet to a law firm because I hadn't quite figured it out. But I also knew that I was really good in a courtroom because I had done some things in law school to show me that. And it wasn't until I was an assistant DA that I figured out how to be a real lawyer. Okay? The point is... That's sure, there's always doubt. There's always doubt about whether you've picked it up immediately or not. Sometimes you have to wait a little longer and do things, more things, until you can figure it out. But I stuck to it for one basic reason. Because I knew law was the way I wanted to help people. See, I have a fundamental belief that what good lawyers do, what all lawyers, good and bad, should figure out is the purpose of being a lawyer is to help people figure out how to solve the problems they're having. See, the courtroom doesn't do that. The courtroom announces a winner and a loser. I think good lawyers are the ones who help people figure out how to manage their relationships better, whether they're family relationships, business relationships, community relationships, and how to find answers to their problems that work for them and for the people who they're in conflict with. And once I knew that, then for me sticking it out meant it was a right choice for me because I had a passion about being a lawyer. Now, not everybody does. And if you go to law school and you sit back and say, this is not the way that's right for me to help people, then maybe you shouldn't stick it out. But if you figure it out that this is a way that satisfies you, then you do what I said over here earlier. You keep plugging away at it. It will come to you. Good
0: luck in what you're doing. Justice, I'm smiling because some of the questions are from what dramas do you watch on TV that we can't ask you? uh, What's a day like at the Supreme Court? But the last question that we have is what did you learn in the DA's office that you have brought with you to the Supreme Court?
1: Who's who's the lawyer who asked that?
0: Oh, there are a lot. Are you a prosecutor?
1: Not yet, or maybe. No. What's the greatest lesson I learned in the DA's office? What did you
0: learn in the DA's office?
1: It's a life lesson my father taught me. And it's one that's always stayed with me. Good people do some bad things. You know, it sounds strange to say that's a life lesson I brought to the Supreme Court. But even there, I understand that we live in a society made up of people. And the DA's office reminds me every single day not to forget that as I'm deciding these grand legal theories, that there are people behind the stories. And I think that for lawyers who have done only appellate work or lawyers who have worked only in offices, they sometimes forget the faces. And so, to me, that's been the greatest gift of all, remembering that I'm dealing with the issues of people and institution who are affected by the decisions I make. And so, that is a lesson I treasure. And I would never, even if I had to, you know, I've been asked often, do I have any professional regrets? And I say, none except that I tell law students to make sure they clerk for judges, which I didn't do. And my book explains why I think that's an important choice to make if you can. But I don't think I would redo my professional life because being a DA was critically important in in teaching me how to think like a lawyer, how to look at facts and apply them to law. It made me a common law judge in one who really believes in deciding each case step at a time and not think about global policy decisions, but to be a common law judge who thinks about resolving the issue before me first and let the next case come to present the next issue. And so those are important lawyer lessons, but the life lesson is to remember that every decision we make affects someone.
0: My cousin is Lauren Murray. Oh, well, you know Lauren is
1: in the book. Yes, I've heard. Yes, you must read it because he is there. I pay him much tribute. Thank you. Uh, Carla, were you telling me that was the last question?
0: Would you like to hear? No, I have
1: to. Listen. I have to be in
0: court tomorrow. We know. And the last question, yes, the very last, was about that. Okay. What is <laughs> a day like on the Supreme Court? Uh, we
1: research, think, and write all day long. Now, how boring that might sound to a lot of people, okay? I, do, I don't do book tours all the time, but I, I do go and speak to groups all the time, whether at law schools. I, for one, have made it a priority in my life um, to reach out to kids of all grades and levels. So I've spoken to kids as young as second grade. I've met with Head Start students, So I've gone even earlier than second grade. And I meet with kids in all kinds of settings. Some of you may have heard that I was on Sesame Street. (laughs) Um, And so education, health issues are my priorities, and I meet with groups who do all sorts of things in those two areas. I meet with judges from everywhere, um, state and federal and international judges. And so we teach, meet with, speak with, sit on panels with groups of all kinds. Some of my colleagues like the academic things better. I do some of those as well. So I have taught, I have taught in law schools for, um, I think it was over 12 years when I was on the courts below. Right now, the only teaching I can do is if, of, of myself, I'm trying to grow into being a justice, okay? <laughs> um, we sit in court only about 40 days a year. And, uh, not 40, it's a little bit more than that. I've lost the count of the number of days. But it's only two hours at, each, at a clip when we meet. As justices, we go to conferences at least once a week, to review the certiorari requests that are made of us. Which cases are we going to hear? And we meet at least once a week to do that. On an argument week, we meet twice a week. On Wednesday, to vote on the cases we heard on Monday, and on Friday, to vote on the cases that we've heard Tuesday and Wednesday. That's why it's a school night for me. (laughs) As you know, we had some cases on in court this week. <laughs> and we still have cert petitions to do, so it's a school night. But I think the dry definition of what we do is just uh, dry, because the most important part of what a justice does is to think about the issues that, become, that come before us. And each vote we take, we take on the basis of what we think the law, precedent, and the Constitution require. And in each vote, we understand that we're going to affect institutions and people in good and bad ways. Because you see, as I said earlier, in every court case, there's a loser, and that entity or that person is going to feel that some form of justice wasn't done for them and so in each case we are making a statement about what we think the law is and says it is and what the constitution means and that for someone like me who has a passion about the law is an extraordinary job to have. If you haven't figured it out, I loved being a lawyer. I've loved better being a judge. I love even better being a justice now.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. For being here on a school night for gracing us with your presence, and for the wonderful thoughts you've shared.
1: Thank you you all for being here.